Thank you, Lewis. Okay, if you have a, a, come on in. If you need a lesson, raise your hand. Um, the lesson is odd, literally. Uh, it's missing all of the even pages. We have pages one, three, five, and seven. We're missing two, four, six, eight. Who do we appreciate? Um, so today you have a, a, an odd lesson. Um, but uh, uh, next Sunday, we're going to finish the, the class on the Pope. And so, uh, and, and I say the Pope, it's the Pope from uh, the inception of the New Testament up through Leo I, uh, so to the 450s, uh, 460s. Um, <clears throat> we'll revisit the Pope as, as uh, things develop in history. Uh, but anyway, next week what Philip will do is he'll bring a, a new lesson for this week. Uh, so that next week you can get kind of a twofer. You can have uh, uh, the whole uh, enchilada in one. Um, <clears throat> now, having said that, you have to pay a little bit more attention to the class this morning. You can't just sit there and read because it will uh, be odd. Um, so uh, we will do this. Now, um, I am delighted uh, uh, at, at who all's here this morning. Uh, it's, it's a little lighter than normal. Um, but I would urge you uh, next week, if you've got friends or family who uh, uh, are, have questions about uh, the papacy, about uh, the Pope, about Catholicism in general, um, this is actually a really good class for them to come to. Uh, uh, what I'm trying to do very, very carefully is present things in, in an accurate historical manner, which is what I hope you would expect from me regardless of what I, I speak from. I am not uh, uh, from the Catholic tradition. Uh, I am a Protestant born and bred, and I worship uh, as a Protestant today. And so I, I let everybody know, because you need to know, you know, and, and some of you may be visitors. I've been told that we have some visitors here. Uh, obviously, this is not a Catholic church in the sense of the Roman Catholic uh, uh, usage of the word, and nor am I a, a Roman Catholic uh, teacher. So having said all of that and recognizing where I come from, I do want to tell you that I have really, really tried because it's in my nature and it's what I want to do to uh, assess these things from an accurate, not only scriptural basis, but an accurate historical basis. And so with that, let's look at the lesson this morning. Um, this is uh, Vatican City uh, in Rome, Italy. That's St. Peter's Square and that's uh, uh, St. Peter's Cathedral. Uh, the Vatican City is technically not part of Italy in the sense that it's not part of the Italian country and the Italian government. Uh, Vatican City is uh, owned uh, uh, and uh, a sovereign entity by the Roman Catholic Church. The guards there are not from Italy. Uh, they are Swiss guards. Being a neutral country, uh, Swiss has provided the guards and the protection for Vatican City. Uh, that is obviously the home of the current pope. Uh, pope Benedict XVI is our current pope. Uh, uh, by ours, I mean the world's, if you will, from the Roman Catholic perspective. Uh, uh, and he took over uh, shortly after John Paul uh, II had passed away. Um, I have never met a pope. <clears throat> I have a lot of good friends, not a lot. I have several good friends who have spent some significant time with popes. Uh, 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 and and I, it's a very interesting, um, 
It, it's a very interesting concept uh, for me as a Protestant. Now, one of the ways that I approach this stuff is I like to understand things from the ground up. I want a good general understanding. So I ask first this question, what exactly is a pope? Okay. I mean, that's to me a good legitimate question. I don't know where the word comes from if I don't dig around to try to find. Well, this is one that wasn't hard to figure it out. Our word pope comes ultimately from a Greek word, papas. Papas. Anybody ever heard of any Greeks named Papas? <laughs> you with me there so far? Well, the Latins took the Greek word Papas and they changed it just a little bit. Just Papa. Papa. The Aramaic word, we were reminded this morning in our sermon, Abba. We have, you know, I, I went to college in Tennessee. Uh, they've cut it down even further. Over there, it's Paul. Or Maul. In English, Papa is Father. And so the, the, the word that we translate or call or the label now of Pope literally means father. Now, how did the Pope become a father? Or how is the Pope a father? Well, um, we look at this both from a biblical perspective and a historical perspective. In the Bible, the word Pope is not used. In the Bible, you do not have... Now, you do have Paul calling Timothy his son in the faith. But you don't have the word Pope being used in your Bible, Old or New Testament. You do have uh, the Bible talking about different offices. And if we look in our New Testament, for example, Paul writes in Titus 1.7 that Titus is to appoint elders or overseers for the churches. Paul says, this is what I do for all my churches. And, and in the process, Paul tells Titus what an overseer, and the Greek word for overseer is episkopos. Episkopos. And that's a word that can be translated bishop as well. In fact, it becomes the Latin bishop. Okay? So in a sense, since uh, Paul is saying since a bishop or an overseer is entrusted with God's word, he must be blameless, and, bah, 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 and he goes on down the line. In Timothy, Paul gives the same, almost with some slight variation, list of what's required of an elder uh, to Timothy. And uh, some churches have what are called elders that preside over the churches. Historically, we'll deal with this development next week. But from a biblical perspective, what you have is the presence of a word that we would translate bishop, episkopos, or you could say, translate it an overseer, or you could translate it as an elder. Uh, elder is actually a different word, but it's the same office, and that's clear from the context. So in the New Testament, bishops are also called elders. But we don't have the use of the word father for them or the use of the word pope. Now, let's go forward from the Bible. In the 200s, bishops are called papas. 
Bishops are called papas in the sense that they're spiritual fathers. And so uh, uh, in writings, we will see that uh, uh, the various bishops of the various churches in the various metropolitan areas are also called the spiritual fathers of the flock or the people that are there. So in a sense, you've got what now in the 200s, all the writing is in Greek for the church. We don't have them writing in Latin yet, so we don't have papa or we don't have pope yet. But, but you've, got, you've got, in essence... Pope as a label, the spiritual father label being applied to any number of different bishops in the 200s. This continues through the 300s. It continues through the 400s in the same way. Now, once we reach the 500s, which technically we haven't reached yet, once we reach the 500, Papa, because at that point we've got a lot of Latin writers, is mostly only the Bishop of Rome. You've got a number of different churches in a number of different areas. And you've got these small little churches, okay, in small little places. But you've got in the major uh, uh, metropolitan or the major populated areas uh, a presiding bishop at this point in history. And we'll deal with this more next week as we look at it historically. But just for the name, let's make sure we got it clear. You've got, you know, over in Alexandria, you've got a, a, a bishop over Alexandria. You've got a bishop over Antioch. You've got a bishop over Jerusalem. You've got a, you know, any number of bishops. They were bishops that were called to the council at Chalcedon that we talked about last week. Hundreds of bishops because that's what they had. They had hundreds of bishops. Now, those bishops get called Papa or Pope in essence up until the 500s. But starting in the 500s, it's really just the bishop who's located at Rome in the Roman Catholic tradition that gets called the Pope. As we discussed last week, the Coptic Church veers off in the 400s in Egypt. They've called their bishop Pope historically since the beginning and still call him Pope as well as their spiritual father. Now, that's where the word comes from. You with me? So now we know the history of the word Pope. Next area. What exactly is the Pope? Okay? <clears throat> Anybody ever had a church directory? Okay, some churches have them, some don't. We don't have really a church directory, do we? 93 was the last one. See, that was before I was here. Okay, Catholic Church does at the Vatican. The Vatican has a church directory. It's kind of cool. It's called the uh, Anunario Ponticicio. That uh, is the Vatican Church Directory for lack... I mean, that, I've kind of anglicized it a little bit here and made it Protestant for us. But that's really what it is. It's kind of like, here's all the people at the Vatican and here's what their jobs are. And you can look up the Pope. Say, okay, who's the Pope and what's his job? Now, it does not contain his email address or his cell number. If you people want to try and get a hold of him, that's not going to work. Um, but it does give us the titles that the Pope has because while the Pope is the Bishop of Rome and that's what his name comes from, he actually has a number of different titles. You know, like we've got Louis Miori uh, uh, has, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's Louis Miori. He's the husband of Michelle. But he's also uh, the counseling, what's your title here? Counseling? Pastor. Champion Forest Baptist Church. You know, Damon Shook used to be our our lead pastor, senior pastor, excuse me, but he was also the, the, the uh, uh, 
you know, a pulpit pastor. The, I mean, there are different responsibilities and, and things that go. So you can look up the Pope and you can read about his titles. First of all, like I'm saying, he is the Bishop of Rome today. He is still not just Vatican City, but of Rome itself. He is the Bishop of Rome. All right? In addition to that, he's called the Vicar of Jesus Christ. That's another job title he has. A third title he has is as successor of the chief of the apostles. All right? He's got a fourth. He's the supreme pontiff of the universal church. He's got a fifth. He's the patriarch of the West. He's the primate of Italy. He is the archbishop and metropolitan of the Roman province. And last but not least of his formal titles, because he has some informal ones. He is the sovereign of the state of Vatican City. Like I say, that's a, its own political entity, Vatican City is. And he is the sovereign of the state of the Vatican City. Now, over history, a lot of these titles develop and accrue to him. The Catholic Church would never say that these were all titles that were uh, for example, of Peter, okay, who supposedly was the first pope. The reason why is Vatican City isn't even a sovereign state at the time of Peter. There's no way Peter could have been the sovereign of the state of Vatican City. Uh, Patriarch of the West, Peter couldn't have been that. The West and the East hadn't even split off. And there, there weren't really divisions of West and East at that time. Um, Italy wasn't a, a, a country, at the time. So these are titles that become uh, uh, part of the Pope's uh, uh, um, job through history. We'll look at some of these next week as we chart through history uh, with the Pope and we'll see how they all come out. I will tell you that out of all of these titles, the one constant current, the, 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 the source, if you will, for the Pope's authority is as the successor of the chief of the apostles. And that's kind of the core that gives the Pope the authority that, that the Roman Church uh, uh, gives to the Pope. So that's where we're going to start our class this morning. We're going to look at the successor of the Chief of the Apostles title that the Pope has and uh, examine it uh, uh, and try to understand it from both the Catholic perspective and from the Protestant perspective. Um, so with that... Successor of the Chief of the Apostles. Now, who knows this picture? That's Peter. Anytime you want to pick Peter out in a good old Renaissance or earlier painting, what do you look for? That's right. Because Peter, it's the keys that are the giveaway for Peter. Usually, not usually, oftentimes there's a gold and a silver key, as there is in this painting. But uh, uh, Peter is, is uh, uh, the man in the paintings with the keys, okay? We're going to examine Peter, the chief apostle. We're going to examine him with two pertinent questions. There are two things that, that kind of rotate on this issue of the pope and his authority. The first is, was Peter a pope? If you're the successor of the chief of the apostles, is Peter in fact... A pope. All right? And then the second, 
were their successors to Peter. Because Peter might be a pope, but if the office died with Peter, then there's no subsequent popes within God's scheme of the church. Okay? So we will look at scriptures that apply to these two questions because they're the core questions for the papacy. And the way we're going to do it this week, as I say, we're going to look at it from a New Testament perspective. Next week, we're going to get out the history books and we're going to see how this office unfolded through history, how history attests to it and where history uh, has its disputes with it as well. Um, So uh, with that in mind, uh, this week, let's start with scripture. There are a number of scriptures that the Catholic Church uses to substantiate the doctrine of Pope, uh, of the papacy. Uh, um, These are not, by and large, new scriptures. Pope Leo I himself, in the 450s, used a number of these scriptures to substantiate his credibility as he asserted his will and his beliefs and his doctrines uh, uh, on the church where he was able to. The three core scriptures that come out of the New Testament that are used to to explain the role of the Pope, uh, we will look at first. There are three core scriptures. After that, it's more these minor scriptures also get used. But but the, the core scriptures are three. The first comes out of Matthew chapter 16. And it's the conversation that Jesus has with his apostles and specifically with Peter. In this conversation, you'll recall, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And the answer is, oh, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're, you know, on and on. And then Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter is the one who speaks up. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Um, uh, by the way, that's almost Johnson. Uh, Jonah and, and, and is uh, kind of the Hebrew for John. And so, uh, uh, you know, technically he was Simon Johnson. Um, <laughs> I mean, he really was. That's the, 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 just for grins, okay, for those who are interested in how words devolve, son of John became John's son. So he was Simon Johnson. Blessed are you, you, Simon Johnson, Simon, son of Jonah. Uh, Jonah being the Hebrew for John. Uh, For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And uh, there's uh, some indication, a legitimate indication, that this may may be where Jesus renamed Peter. At least this is where Jesus pronounces him as Peter. You know, you are Simon Johnson, but I tell you, you are Peter. The Greek word there that Matthew uses is Petros. And on this rock, the Greek word there is Petra, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. See, that's where he gets the keys from for all the paintings. I will get you the keys. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, this is 
the uh, uh, bedrock, if you'll pardon a bad pun, uh, this is the bedrock scripture for the role of Peter as the first pope. The idea being that God has said through Jesus Christ, I'm changing your name to Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Peter, Peter means rock, on this rock, I'm going to build, rock being Peter, on you Peter, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell won't stand against it. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. You, Peter, you get the keys. And what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Um, if we go to uh, uh, the Sistine Chapel, they have this uh, painting, I believe, of it. And um, this is uh, supposedly a, a painting of the scene. Uh, that's Jesus handing the gold and the silver key to Peter. These are the apostles looking on. Um, uh, it's uh, interesting to see the apostles. Uh, uh, see that guy there? I will blow him up a little bit. Here he is. That's Judas, in case you ever wanted to know what he looked like. Um, um, that is Judas. We also have uh, John. You remember we talked about the Da Vinci Code uh, a few months ago and how Da Vinci makes, uh, how uh, Brown, Scott Brown, whatever his name is, the guy who wrote the Da Vinci Code, Ron Brown. Jim, Jim who Brown? Dan Brown. The guy that wrote the Da Vinci Code. Uh, who, by the way, wrote another book before he had broken through uh, under his name. He changed his name to like Dana Brown, and he wrote it as a woman, claiming to be a woman anyway, about uh, the reasons that men are terrible and we should stay away from men. I don't know if that helps you with your class you'll be teaching soon, Lewis, but <laughs> just thought it interesting he'd changed his name and pretend to be a woman to write about men. Um, Anyway, Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code made a big deal out of the fact that in the Last Supper painting, the Apostle John is painted like a, a girl because it's not really the Apostle John, it's really Mary. You remember that? And if you recall, uh, and I get mixed up what I say where, I, I gave a, a lecture on this as a trial lawyer cross-examining Dan Brown uh, downtown, but, but uh, there, there are... You know, Any time in the classical paintings, John was such a young man, he's often painted as a young boy, a prepubescent boy. And so uh, uh, he does look a bit effeminate in a lot of the paintings. It's not because of the Da Vinci Code, but I thought it worth pointing out, uh, you know, even uh, in the 1400s when this is being painted in the Sistine Chapel, uh, uh, he, he doesn't look like the striking guy that, say, Judas does. But anyway... Be that as it may, let's focus back on the lesson. The lesson is uh, uh, what happened here with this story. What I'd like to do first is give you the Catholic view of what's being done here and why this makes Peter the Pope. First of all, the Catholic view is, is that Peter, Petros, is the rock, Petra. The rock of the church, the foundation rock of the church is actually Peter. The church is built upon Peter. Uh, the second is, is that 
conclusion. This church is built then on Peter. Peter has that role of the foundation. The third, Peter has the keys and Peter has the authority and the ability to bind on earth something which is then bound in heaven or to loose on earth something which is then loosed in heaven. This is a papal, papal authority that Peter has. It's the Catholic view. That when Jesus said this, it means Peter has an ability to be the spokesperson for heaven on earth, in essence, binding and loosing as he sees fit. And so you add it all together, and the bottom line is, under the Catholic view, Peter is what we would call the Pope. By the Pope, what is meant here is, among the bishops, Peter is the first he is the preeminent one. He is the, the leader. He is the, the, the first in line. He has the direct channel and, and influence with the Holy Spirit that the other bishops uh, singularly do not have. Um, that's the Catholic view. Okay. Now, the Protestant view. First of all, there are lots of different Protestant views. And I'm sure there are different Catholic views. I've given you the mainline Catholic view. But uh, uh, there are lots of different Protestant views. For example, some Protestants will say that Peter, Petros, is the rock, but uh, uh, Peter is, is not the rock that Jesus is going to build his church on. See, Jesus uses a different word. He uses Petra. It's the same word, but it's got a different ending. And technically, it can mean differently in the Greek. Whereas Petros can mean a rock, Petra means kind of a cliff or a ledge. And so some Protestants will argue that Jesus is saying, you're Peter, and I'm going to make a nice pun off of your name, but upon this rock, this Petra that I'll build my church, Jesus is not talking about Peter the person. He's talking about the confession of faith that Peter made, that Jesus is the Christ. Okay? Now, uh, there are a lot of people who hold to that view, and I don't want to discourage anyone from it. I will tell you from a personal perspective, uh, I don't find that a compelling view. And there are a lot of Protestants that do not either. The reason why is, is because Jesus is speaking Aramaic. He's not speaking Greek. Matthew has to write it in Greek. But in Aramaic, the word that he would most likely be using, really it is the word he was going to have to use, is, is kipha. And it's going to be the same word. It's just Matthew can't write it that way because when you translate that Aramaic into Greek, if he does it for Peter's name, then he makes Peter out to be a girl. Okay? And so Peter's not some girly man. Which is what, I mean, people would be reading the Greek and they'd be laughing hysterically. Petra, ha, 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 ha. Okay, he's a girly man. Okay, so he's got to change it to make it masculine. And so uh, uh, I don't really think that that's, what Jesus was saying. Um, I think Jesus was saying that Peter is the rock. And on Peter, God will build his church. Okay? But by that I understand it different than the Catholic faith understands it. God does build his church on Peter. It is Peter who in Acts chapter 2 gives the very first sermon... That builds the church. It is Peter who stands up on the day of Pentecost and as the Spirit has invaded the apostles, 
Peter is the one who gets up and is the mouthpiece and preaches the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and faith in Christ and baptism. And, and it is in Acts chapter 2 that we read that thousands were added to the church that day. The church is born from Peter and his, his uh, sermon. And so uh, I think that this is a prophecy that Jesus is giving, that it's going to be Peter who is uh, 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 the rock that declares Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Son of God. And that upon this rock, the church is built. The church is in fact built upon not only Peter's proclamation of faith, but how Peter preaches it or the way the Holy Spirit uses Peter to preach it. And it's not just in Acts chapter 2. It is Peter who first converts a Gentile. We think of Paul as the apostles to the Gentiles, but it was Peter who converted Cornelius. So I think uh, uh, we see, uh, you know, if we break it out, Peter not only delivers the Pentecost sermon, but in the first 12 chapters of Acts, Peter's by name is mentioned over 50 times. It is Peter who is the, 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 the one, if you will, that God uses to kickstart this church. And we are a church today. We are of the church today because God used Peter to commence what we have today, the body of Christ, the church. You know, Peter, as I told you, converted the first Gentile. So net-net, Protestant view, the church is built on Peter. Next point. Protestants believe Peter had the keys and can bind. But here's where the Protestant view differs from the Catholic. For the Catholic view, the keys to the kingdom means that it is Peter who has the understanding ultimately. And it is Peter who ultimately has control, if you will, over the gates. And uh, 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 it, it is a, a significant bestowal of, of eternal responsibility on Peter. And the Protestant view of this passage is different. The Protestant view of this is, in a sense, um, if there is a storehouse of treasures on the other side of this locked door, and I want you all to enjoy the storehouse of treasures, I might give uh, Castell the keys. But it doesn't mean Castell has all of the power and control. What it means is, is Castell's the one who gets to go unlock the door so we can all go in and enjoy the treasures because he has the keys. And you see, Peter had the keys in the sense that it's Peter who opened the door on Pentecost and opened the door to the church. And, and that's the, the Protestant perspective. Now, it does say that Peter has authority and whatever Peter binds on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever Peter looses on earth will be loosed in heaven. But if you just flip over two more chapters to Matthew chapter 18, you'll see Jesus saying that same thing to all of his apostles. That was not uniquely Peter had this power. That was a power that Jesus says he gave to all of his apostles. So um, net, net, bottom line, in essence, same passage of scripture. The Protestant approach is um, there's no special unique office that is set up for Peter out of this passage. Um, uh, that's the bottom line. 
question. Was Peter getting a special office that would continue at the discretion of certain elements of the church until the end? In other words, was there an office of Pope? And this office is going to continue to be in effect with power and control uh, 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 with uh, you know, the church being able to figure out who the next successor would be until the end of days. And, and that's the ultimate question that's here. Now, that's the first passage, Matthew 16. The second major passage used uh, within the Catholic tradition for this, even back at the time of Pope Leo, is uh, uh, in John 21. Now, this is after Peter has betrayed Christ three times before the cock crowed, remember? Christ is uh, crucified, resurrected, and Christ appears to his apostles and, and a number of other people as a risen Lord. When Jesus has his encounter with Peter here, as John relates it, Peter and the others have been out fishing. They can't catch anything. Jesus tells them where to catch. They catch. They come on shore and said, you know, they ultimately figure out it's the Lord, but God's, uh, Jesus has got a fire going. They have fish for breakfast. I don't like fish. I can't imagine eating fish for breakfast, but they do, and that's okay. They had fish for breakfast. Have you, who in here has ever had fish for, I'm not talking like a tuna sandwich. I mean fish for breakfast. Y'all are sick. <laughs> but you're much more apostolic than I am. During this, uh, after this breakfast meal is enjoyed, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Then Jesus asks Peter again, Peter, do you love me? He says, well, you know I love you. Three times he's asked. And, and, and it's, you, know, you can almost see Peter pulling his hair out. You know, like, you know, wh where am I missing this? Um, and there's a lot to that passage. Uh, you go back to our biblical literacy class and look at it. There are different Greek words that John's using to maybe show a different idea that Jesus and Peter had on what love is. But uh, um, uh, ultimately, the Catholic perspective, Roman Catholic perspective on this passage is that for three times, and in a sense, there are many times in the Old Testament where three is used as emphasis. Okay, you do it three times for emphasis. Uh, and that's still true in the New Testament. Paul will use, say the same thing three different ways for emphasis. Three times Jesus says it because he wants to emphasize, Peter, you have responsibility, you Peter, for feeding my sheep and for tending to my sheep. That's your responsibility. And uh, uh, so uh, uh, this is seen as a role. Um, now, I tried to get a picture of that. And the best I could do is this uh, red chalk drawing from the 1400s. And it doesn't really add much when I'm this close. I doubt it adds much to you back there, but we'll use it as a backdrop anyway for the Feed My Sheep passage. Catholic view and the Protestant view. The Catholic perspective is this was a special ordination to Peter to take Jesus' spot as a shepherd and feed and tend to the sheep, the flock, the church. This is Jesus, in essence, taking his authority and handing it to Peter, saying, I'll be departing. I want you to take responsibility to feed and tend to my sheep. Okay? The Protestant's perspective is, Peter has just denied Christ three times. Jesus has come back. It's Jesus' first real heart-to-heart -heart with Peter. Peter is clearly discouraged. He went out and wept. He wasn't even at the crucifixion because he couldn't handle it. 
He felt like this is the Peter who said, I'll never betray you, Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, yes, you will. He says, no, I don't care if everybody else falls away. I'm with you to the bitter end. Jesus says, no, Peter, I tell you three times before the cock crows, uh, 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 you're going to betray me three times before the cock crows twice or whatever. And, and, and Peter says, uh, this just isn't going to happen. And yet it does. And when it happens, Jesus manages to catch Peter's eye while Jesus is being abused. And the cock crows and Peter goes away. And this is, from the Protestant perspective, this is our Lord coming back to Peter saying, Hey, I never wrote you off. I knew that was going to happen. You love me? Yes, I love you. I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to take care. I, I, from a Protestant perspective, this isn't different than me telling Gary Greer, Jesus wants you to feed the sheep. The reason I teach on Sunday morning is out of a conviction that Jesus wants me to feed his sheep. I'm a sinful person. I've done horrible things in my life that I wish I had not done. I wish I could turn the clock back and change a number of events in my life. But... Jesus still today loves me and still charges me. If I love him, he's got a purpose for me. And so the Protestant perspective on it is very different. When you ask that same question, was Peter getting a special office that would continue at the discretion of certain elements of the church until the end from this passage of Scripture? The Catholic view is yes. The Protestant view is no. Third passage, that's the main passage, the uh, main passage is in Luke 22. Jesus says, uh, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. We sift flour, which is wheat. To sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. In other words... I've prayed for you that you're not going to lose your faith. Your faith won't fail, but you are going to deny me. And then turn back. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. In the Catholic perspective, this passage was used to say that Peter was given a special ordination or an office at this point also, or at least this confirms it, to uh, 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 strengthen the church. That the brothers there, Peter would understand at least as the other apostles. And so that, that Peter is the preeminent over the other apostles. He now has authority and responsibility to strengthen the other apostles and tend to them. Uh, uh, the Protestant view is uh, very different. It's uh, not that there's some special office here. The Protestant view is one that Jesus is saying, you are going to, in essence, fail me. You you, you are going to deny me, but it's not an eternal change in your faith. You will turn back, and when you do, you get back on the path of doing what I've told you to do. You, you strengthen your brethren. You tend to them. We're all to strengthen the brethren. This is not a unique charge to Peter for a, a, an office. This is a general charge to any Christian to strengthen the brethren. Um, now, those are the three main passages used in, in Scripture to uh, explain the role of Peter as the first pope or, or as the chief of the apostles, if you will. There are a number of smaller passages that are used. Uh, in the smaller passages, for example, Peter is called the fisher of men, sometimes by himself. 
course, not all of the apostles were fishermen. Um, Peter is often listed first in the listing of the apostles. And this is pointed out to show that he probably had preeminence. Of course, the Protestant view is, is well, he's not always listed first. You know? and, and, and I think clearly Peter was a leader among the apostles. Don't get me wrong. Um, but there's a difference between that and, and a charge of an authority of an office, a special office. Sometimes the scriptures refer to Peter and his companions. And so these types of scriptures are often used to show this, that Peter had this. But was Peter getting a special office? Uh, uh, the Protestant perspective is no. The Catholic perspective is yes. One step further. Another passage that the Protestant church will often use is they'll go to uh, the, the book of Acts chapter 15, and then they'll go to Galatians and show that Paul and Peter actually had a head-to-head. And if you look at the head-to-head, it doesn't look like Paul acknowledged Peter as uh, 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 in any sense what we would consider a pope today. Um, Paul, in Acts chapter 13, becomes the center focus for the book of Acts. And, And just as Peter was for the first 12 chapters, Paul is after that. When Paul talks about his head-to-head with Peter, In Galatians chapter 2, he says the following, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him, Peter, to his face because he, Peter, was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, and James it looks like, at least in Acts 15, is the head of the church in Jerusalem at this point, not Peter. But before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, these men arrived, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. And the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. He goes on to say even Barnabas was led astray by his hypocrisy. And Paul, through the rest of the chapter of, uh, 2 of Galatians, uh, uh, just relates the fact that, that but this is just flat wrong. And so from a Protestant perspective... Uh, that uh, is a passage that's used to say time out. It doesn't look like Peter had a special office that, that required at least Paul to say, you've got a word from God that's beyond mine. Now the Catholic response to this is uh, uh, one that says popes aren't perfect. Popes have never been perfect. There have been horrible popes in the history of the church, and the Catholic Church readily acknowledges this. Um, uh, Popes are are not perfect. Uh, uh, The infallibility issue we'll talk about later because that doesn't come up for history for a long time, but even that, I mean, the pope once a week has confession, okay? Uh, He's got his own special priest that comes to him for confession. The Catholic Church has no pretense that the Pope is perfect, nor that the Pope's ever been perfect. And so they say, so Peter messed up, and he was wrong, and he was a hypocrite, and and, I got called on it, and so be it. Much like the Old Testament high priest, it doesn't change just because he's corrupt or he's not doing something right or he's just flat wrong. It doesn't change the office itself that God set up. And that's the Catholic perspective on that. Now, I do want us to underscore a second part of this question because uh, 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 it's more what we'll look at next week with the history part. But that is, um, not only was Peter getting a special office, but is it one that would continue? In other words, the apostles were the apostles. If you go to a a Mormon church today, they'll tell you we should still have 12 apostles because we had 12 in the New Testament and it's continued. 
Uh, Protestant churches, by and large, don't say we have 12 apostles anymore. The apostolic office died with the apostles. So there's a question of if Peter had a special office, is it an office that continued into the future? Or was it a unique thing that applied to that New Testament church as the church's doors were opened and the church was built? That's a question we'll look at next week. Uh, at this point, though, uh, we'll interrupt the lesson, send you home with three lessons points for home, and then we'll rejoin next week and hopefully we'll, we'll even out the odd lesson that you were handed. Um, Christ loved the church. Christ gave himself up for the church to make her holy. Christ has cleansed the church by the washing with water through the word. And the reason was to present the church to himself as a radiant, a shining church, a clean, pure, radiant church without stain, without wrinkle, without blemish, holy and blameless. There's no dispute on that issue. That is what the church is called to be. That is what children of God are called to be. United together. Second point, Jesus does care about the unity of his church. If you go back to John and Jesus' prayer before he, he is crucified, he spends a significant portion of that prayer praying for the unity of the church. It means something to Jesus for people who put their faith in him to hold each other accountable and, and to see each other as family. And then third, uh, from Dale Hearn, he brought out a, a great scripture uh, from 2 Samuel that uh, uh, regardless of, of where you see the, the Pope in terms of being among the bishops or being first among the bishops or a successor to Peter in his role, there is no doubt about this. And that is, God is my rock. God is my fortress. God is my deliverer my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. And that's the God that we all worship and adore. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, you, you start with these scriptures. And from these scriptures, we're going to move into church history. And I'm going to tell you, it may surprise you, even within what we consider now the Roman Catholic tradition, there have been strong voices, not only for the Pope being the Pope as he's understood today, but there have been strong voices against the Pope being the Pope that he is today, considered today. And we'll start looking at those and chart those through next week. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, it is so nice to come before you without a doubt in our mind that you love us, that you died for us, that you care for us. Father, it is my prayer that your spirit will permeate our being, that we'll take your love and your tenderness and your compassion, and that it will change the way we treat not only our earthly family, but our heavenly family as well. May we have the compassion that you have. May we have the love and the devotion and the care that you have. And may we seek, Lord, to please you by what we do, and not what we're brought up with, and not what we're uh, bound to by habit, or, but, but simply by you, what you've done for us, the way you love us, and what we can learn about you through your spirit and your word. 
That is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.